If the habits you have today are not in alignment with the dreams you have for tomorrow, then one of them needs to change. You either need to improve your habits or you need to lower your dreams. And I say that almost tongue in cheek because if you ever ask someone to lower their dreams, they look at you like you've got two heads. They're like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to shoot for less. Okay, well, that's great. Still keep that dream of being a college basketball player, but that means you have to change your habits. Uh, That's the only part of the equation that's left over. Hey guys, welcome to the With Intention podcast. This is season two and it's our first foray into the longer form audio format, but we're also doing some video work here. So uh, whether you're watching or you're listening, welcome. Really excited to introduce you to my friend, Alan Stein Jr. Uh, We dive into a bunch of different topics here. He's what I call a peak performance guru. He's written a great book called Rage Your Game. His background's in the basketball world, so he's worked with the likes of Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry, uh, as well as Kevin Durant, and many, many others. And Alan's taken what he's learned in that world, and he's been able to apply it to life um, and business and many other facets. He's uh, a keynote speaker as well. He delivered about 70 keynote talks. Uh, Last year, that's where I met him. He delivered a talk to our company, and he just does a fantastic job. Um, We're going to jump in for the next hour or so talks a lot about habits, performance. Uh, We talk a little bit about parenting. We talk about the challenges in this COVID-19 environment, of course, which we're all faced with. And I think he does, uh, he's got some really good wisdom around how to build the right habits and maintain the right perspective. So I really hope you enjoy it. And uh, once again, thanks for watching or listening. All right. Welcome, Alan. I'm excited to be here, JG. It's great to connect with you, brother. Good to see you, man, as always. Thanks uh, thanks so much for taking the time. No, my pleasure. This is going to be a fun conversation. Hey, so let, let's start here because I think anybody that's seen any of your stuff or, or really that's new to you, what impresses me the most out of you is your preparation. So we'll dive into that quite a bit. And I know you got plenty of, of stories with your background, but just a quick story when you, so Alan spoke to our, um, our company last year. So at our sales kickoff, you came in. So about 200 or so people, but what impressed me the most was the meeting I think was on, or you spoke on a, I think a Tuesday afternoon, at like two o'clock and you showed up Monday. You were there by probably 10 AM Monday. We had, I think a late breakfast together. And then you sat through our meeting that afternoon heard our CEO speak, heard some of the company stuff. And the more I've gotten to know you since then, the more I know that's just the norm for you. I was pretty blown away by it. You're probably the first I've seen that, man, it comes in a whole day before. Most people, when they speak, they kind of fly in and out and I get schedules and whatnot. But um, let's talk a little bit about that preparation piece because to me, that's like the biggest game changer. And I was just blown away by how you approach that. It was just a, a good... Uh, good lesson for me to see um, just how, how you prepare for anything, right? So talk about that, that process for you. Oh, most certainly. You know, with, with my background in performance coaching, uh, I learned at a very early age that there is a direct relationship between preparation and performance. And, and performance is what everyone wants. Everyone wants to perform well when the lights are on and the cheerleaders are dancing, um, but they don't always make the connection uh, that it's the preparation they do leading up to that 
especially during the unseen hours, um, that's going to dictate the level at which they play. I mean, you still need to be able to show up on game day, of course, um, but the more you can prepare uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, um, the, the more likely you will to perform at your maximum ability. And, you know, I've had so many different mentors pour that into me. Uh, one that comes immediately to mind is Jay Billis. You know, Jay's, for any of your listeners that don't follow college basketball, Jay's kind of the face of ESPN game day. And, and you want to talk about someone that is relentless in his preparation. I mean, the, you know, the, the work that he does prior to calling a game, I mean, it, it's amazing. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the fact that he played at Duke. And, and whether you love Coach K or hate Coach K, uh, it's hard to argue that, that he's an incredibly prepared coach as well. So I think those seeds were planted very early with Jay. But then Jay also has a law background, you know, and, and as a, a former attorney, you know, uh, realizes that preparation is vital. You know, that when you're preparing for a case, you know, not crossing one T or dotting one I uh, could actually give the other person a loophole that, that upends your entire case. So uh, preparation and detail uh, is something that I've always valued. Um, and I also believe that, you know, in order for me to best serve any audience, I have to do everything in my power to get to know that audience in advance and to do as much due diligence and learn as much about them as possible. Um, and that usually starts with a pre-event call uh, where I ask a series of questions to kind of get a pulse on where they are, uh, what challenges and pain points they're experiencing, where they want to go, uh, what is it they want to get out of my presentation or my workshop. Um, and then when I'm able to arrive early and my schedule allows and I can hear other speakers and and, and see other people in the organization, it just allows me to fill in all of those little little holes at the end, which um, again is all in done of service of, of the audience. Uh, but I will say with, with full transparency, um, I actually enjoy doing that because I get to learn new stuff as well. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I love my job as a professional speaker is, you know, when I'm hearing your CEO talk or I'm having lunch with you, which, you know, I remember we had a nice long extended lunch, you know, I'm learning new stuff as well. So as, as much as it may appear that I'm doing it solely in service of others, I'm actually filling my own bucket at the same time. And so it's, it's kind of a, a double win, if you will. But yeah, preparation is something uh, that we have a direct influence over. And, you know, uh, not every speaking engagement goes as well as I'd like. You know, there's going to be some times for a variety of reasons that maybe you don't feel like you performed at the level you were capable of, but I never, ever want the reason for that to be from lack of preparation. You know, it could be from a variety of other circumstances, but preparation is something that I can heavily influence, uh, and, and, you know, I don't ever want it to be for that reason. Yeah, sure. That's great. So let's dive into that a little bit. Just talk um, I'm curious to hear, because I know how much you value that. So when you're getting ready for a talk, which I think I've heard you say you did over 70 last year, or how many last year? Yeah, right around 70. Okay, so a lot, right? So you would think you can wake up and, and in your sleep deliver a keynote or a presentation because you've done it that many times. I know that's not how you roll. So talk a little bit about your routine, how you get ready for game day. I think that's important because I think sometimes – um, and I've fallen victim to this at times where you get you know, complacent. You think you can show up and, and it's just the magic happens. And that's certainly not the case. So 
Oh, certainly. And, and this, you know, again, I'm so thankful that I can draw on my sports background, both as a player and as a coach. And, and there have been two times in my life that I have been bitten with the complacency bug, um, both times as, as a player. And both times um, I severely regretted the fact that, that I just started to mail it in and I, I didn't prepare to the level I was capable of. So thankfully now, you know, at 44 years old, um, with hindsight being 2020 and with some life experience under my belt, uh, I can constantly look back and, and remember the times that I was complacent, uh, how much that undermined my ability to perform. So um, it allows me to stay, you know, incredibly focused with what I'm doing now. And, you know, uh, the, uh, it's just, it's that entire perf- that preparation and performance piece goes so hand in hand. And, and for me, I'm such a, I actually enjoy structure. I enjoy routine. I enjoy habits. And, and I like that, you know, we're using the terminology game day because that's exactly how I view a day that I'm going to speak. That is the game day. And my goal is, can I design a routine, both, you know, the week of, the night before, and the day of, that will allow me to perform at my best because that's what I'm being paid to do. You know, I owe it to that audience to bring my A game and show up as my best self physically, mentally, and emotionally. And over the last four years of doing the corporate speaking, uh, I've really fine-tuned and tweaked that pregame routine and those pregame habits uh, to a point that that I believe that I have them down fairly well, um, that it does allow me to perform at my best. Now, I'm always open-minded. Uh, I'm always trying to learn new things. You know, I'll make slight adjustments and tweaks uh, anytime I learn something and try something that I think will allow me to perform at a higher level, uh, then I'm certainly open to tweaking my routine, but I've got it down pretty well now. So, you know, it, it gives me comfort being part of that preparation process that I know when I do this, 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 and this, the moment I take that stage, I'm ready to go. So it, it really helps boost confidence. Um, my pregame routine, if you will, uh, reduces anxiety, reduces the feeling of pressure, and it just allows me to focus on the present moment and focus on pouring into that audience. And um, it is a very holistic approach. There's a physical, a mental, and an emotional component. I'm a big believer that being a professional speaker requires all three. Um, you know, that, that it can be physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting when you give it your all on stage. So I want to make sure each one of those silos is full to the brim the moment I grab that mic uh, and step on stage. So the routine is, is absolutely vital. And, and of course, with speaking, um, you have to be prepared for different nuances. You know, sometimes I'm giving the opening keynote at an event at 8 a.m. And other times I'm the closing keynote after dinner at 8 p.m. Um, sometimes I'm in the East Coast time zone, which is where I live. Other times I'm in a time zone that could be plus or minus, you know, three to six hours. Um, so I have to be uh, not, I can't be too rigid in my routine. I have to make sure that I can make adjustments um, so for the most part, I've got three different routines. I have for a morning talk, a kind of midday, early afternoon talk, and an evening talk. And, and I just basically follow one of those prescribed plans depending on what I'm doing. So let, let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's dive in. I'd love to hear what, what the routine is, what, everything from sleep to what time you wake up to how you prepare mentally, physically, all that. If you, can, if you don't mind, sure. you can take one of those. 
Well, one of the parts that, that, that helps with that is a good portion of my speaking routine is also just a part of my regular routine. Sure. You know, I aim to get quality sleep every night not just the nights uh, before I'm going to speak. You know, uh, I wake up and make my bed and, and do a 10-minute meditation, um, do some stretching and some exercise. You know, I do that almost every day uh, of my life. So that part's not new to the speaking, um, but that consistency uh, is certainly helpful. Um, you know, when it comes to the actual pre-speaking, uh, probably the biggest difference between that um, and my, my regular daily routine is the rehearsal process. Um, you know, uh, for me, um, it's a combination of I've got somewhat of a script and an outline that I'm, I'm looking forward to following, uh, and that's based on all of my due diligence and pre-work, you know, my pre-preparation work. Um, but it's not so rigid that it's, it's, you know, I have to stick to this script. I give myself permission that if in the moment um, I feel that I need to extend something or shorten something or go off on a slight tangent, you know, I give myself some flexibility to do that. Uh, however, there's always some big rocks that are in place. You know, I have some signature stories and some signature lessons and some signature engagement activities that will be a part of that uh, agenda. And I want to make sure that I rehearse those um, to the point that they never sound rehearsed. And, and that's kind of uh, my goal is, you know, um, even though it's a story, you know, like the Kobe Bryant story that I open every talk with, you know, I have told that story no short of a thousand times. But every time I tell it, I want the audience to feel like I'm saying it for the first time, that I have the same enthusiasm and, and the same excitement and the same buy-in as if I'm telling it for the very first time. Uh, I don't ever want to sound rehearsed. I don't ever want to sound robotic. I don't ever want to sound like I'm going through the motions. Um, and I'm a believer that the you have to get over that hump, that, that you have to almost over-prepare to the point where it sounds like you're doing it for the first time. And I have to realize and have, have respect for the audience that even though I've told the Kobe story a thousand times, this is most likely the first time they've ever heard it. So uh, because I believe that when it comes to professional speaking, it's not about me, it's about the audience, then what's most important is how they receive it. So I've got to bring my A game because that's what, that's what I'm being paid to do and that's what the audience deserves. So back to the, the rehearsal, um, sometimes I will run through a talk uh, in its entirety, you know, and uh, anytime, um, uh, let me back up for a second. One of the most important things to me is when I arrive early is I want to see the venue. Uh, I want to get a feel for the room. Uh, I want to see what the lighting looks like, what the setup looks like. Uh, I want to make sure that, you know, uh, I know that if I'm going to be using a lav mic or a handheld mic or a headset mic, you know, I want to know, am I going to be on a stage where I'm elevated and kind of confined to that stage? Or am I going to be on floor level where I have the opportunity to kind of walk and work the room? You know, are the tables going to be set up in, in rounds or are they going to be more of a classroom or theater style? You know, the more I can um, uh, investigate the room ahead of time, uh, the more it lets my unconscious mind kind of, uh, you know, plan and put some things in place as I'm kind of storyboarding exactly where I'm going to go and how I'm going to perform. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, anytime I can rehearse in the room, that's always my preference. You know, the, the closer I can get 
to the game, the, the higher the transfer will be. Now, many times, um, that's, that's not always an option. You know, sometimes there's other speakers in front of me and I can't rehearse there. So I'll have to do things, say, in my, my hotel room or, you know, in another quiet space, which is, a, which is fine. You know, I've gotten used to doing that. Um, and depending on when was the last time I gave a talk, it, it determines whether or not I run through the entire talk word for word or if I just work on portions of it, you know, many times uh, I've gotten to the point where I know my signature story so well that most of what I need to rehearse in preparation are kind of the transitions and, and how I glue those stories together and how I connect them to lessons. So, for example, uh, if I'm giving three talks in one week, by the third talk, I most likely don't have to run through my talk um, from start to finish. I can kind of highlight the points and, and make sure that I feel prepared. Uh, if I haven't given a talk in two straight weeks, uh, even though I will have been rehearsing leading up to that, then I'm most likely going to run through and do a full dress rehearsal in advance. So a lot of it just has to go on feel. Uh, a lot of it also has to go on, you know, I've mentioned the Kobe story. Uh, you are correct. You could call me at three in the morning, wake me up from a dead sleep, and I'm confident that I can tell you that story syllable by syllable perfectly. But I have some other parts in my presentations that are newer, that are a little less refined, that I don't know as well. And my goal is to get those to the same level as the Kobe story. So sometimes my rehearsal will be spending more time on the areas that I, I need to focus on and polish up a little bit where I don't necessarily need to run through that story over and over. Um, and, you know, uh, I know I'm, I'm kind of meandering a little bit here, but you know, if you take into account the, the sleep, the making the bed, the stretching, the meditation, do some type of exercise, um, I can do all of that before a morning keynote. So then that would lead me directly to my rehearsal, uh, and then I'll shower. I've got, a, I've got some music that I like to listen to when I'm getting dressed. And, you know, it's even little things that, um, you know, such as, as ironing my shirt and ironing my suit before I speak, you know, um, most of the time it doesn't need ironing, but that's part of my process. Like just doing that, uh, listening to a certain song, ironing my shirt, you know, all of that stuff puts me in the frame of mind to be ready to prepare. So it has nothing to do with whether or not my shirt is wrinkly. It just has to do with this is what gives me comfort in preparation. Um, and then once again, depending on if there's a speaker right in front of me or if there's a meal in front of me or if there's a break, uh, that will depend on exactly what time I show up to speak, uh, what time I get you know, the mic all hooked up um, and, and so forth. So uh, it's, a, it's a healthy combination, or at least I believe it's a healthy combination of a pregame plan but with enough flexibility that I can kind of tweak it as need be so that I don't ever feel confined or constricted to being so rigid. I love it. And look, it brings to mind, and we talk about this a lot in the business world, you, you have to think of yourself like an athlete at work, right? I mean, a lot of people don't, but if, if not, you're going to fall behind for anything from energy management to peak performance, all that stuff matters. And look, I, you travel a ton. Uh, obviously that's changed right now. Same for me, but typically for the last 20 years, I, I've traveled pretty much every week and what I eat, how much I sleep, 
those sorts of things are, are crucial just to be able to be at that, you know, you know, being at peak performance, I think is a little bit of a misnomer because it's hard to be there all the time, but can you get as close as possible where you can produce, right? Even when you're not at the top of your game. And um, I think it's such, I mean, look, I I think that's why you're resonating so much in the corporate world because, because taking your, uh, and your background, obviously, in, in basketball and sports and working with a lot of not just elite athletes, the best of the best. When you think about Kobe and, and Durant and Steph Curry and some of these folks, and I know the list goes on and on, but um, that's that's cool. It's And it's needed. I mean, I'm telling you, it's it's the conversations I have in the business world, whether it's with clients, colleagues, some speaking that I do, most people don't think about it, right? Oh, no, they of, don't. And that, that can be really dangerous. And, and you know, the, the way I view it, um, I try to make things as simplified as possible. You know, as I've gotten older, I've really embraced and had a newfound respect and appreciation for simplicity. So, so in theory, here's kind of the question I ask. So I'm going to speak uh, to, to John's company today at four in the afternoon. And I ask myself, all right, what do I need to do to make sure that when I show up and step on stage at four o'clock, Uh, I am the best version of myself, physically, mentally, and emotionally. How can I position myself so I can best serve his audience? And then I start to work backwards from there. And that's kind of how I've developed that routine. Uh, And then any decision that I make leading up to that, you know, specifically the day of or the night before, I just simply ask myself, is this going to give me an increased chance of being my best or is this going to decrease chance? You know, uh, uh, I prefer um, to not put anything unusual on my schedule the day of a speaking engagement. You know, uh, I want to I make sure that I'm in control of as many things that I can control. So, you know, I'm not going to venture off uh, and take an Uber 20 miles from the hotel uh, to go visit a high school friend that happens to live in the same city at noon on the day that I'm going to speak to your group at four, because there's too many things, unforeseen things that could pop up that could detract from my ability to do my job, which is to be on fire at 4 p.m. You know, I mean, the, 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 the Uber could get a flat tire on the way back. You know, I mean, there's so many things that could happen that could unravel what it is that I'm there to do. So in that instance, my number one job and my number one focal point is serving your audience at 4 o'clock. Now, when that's done, if there's an opportunity to go visit my friend once the pressure is off, then that would be fine. I'd have no problem with that. Uh, but I take my job very, very seriously. And, you know, in, in that case, uh, I'm there to serve your audience. Uh, I'm there to serve you as the person that brought me in and hired me. You know, um, I'm there if, if I happen to, if we were connected by a speaking bureau, I'm there to serve the speaking bureau. You know, um, if we're recording the content and I know that I'm going to put it out socially at a later date, I'm there to serve my social following. So I take those things very, very serious. And, and using that same analogy, you know, I, I know at present the NBA season is on pause, but if the Lakers had a game tonight, You know, all of Los Angeles is counting on LeBron to show up as his best self because that's the only way the Lakers have the best chance to be successful is when he shows up as his best self. So not only does he owe that to himself and his respect for the game, but he owes that to his teammates, to his coaches, to the, the, you know, the Lakers organization, to the fans, to the people that are watching. And I view it the exact same way. 
So everything is done in service of the audience. Everything is done in service of those that have hired me and paid me to be there. And I don't want to do anything that could increase the chance of unraveling that. Yeah. All right. So some of the, the research I did leading up to this, so I, as you know, I talked to your brother and uh, we share similarities in that both our parents were teachers. And your brother talked about your mom and dad and, and specifically your dad who I believe was a sixth grade math teacher and then a, became a principal. Correct. Um, and the thing Jeremy said was your dad taught you guys how to serve first and add value first. I thought that was really cool and that, that resonated with me and it's similar to what you're saying now. So if you could talk about that a little bit, what you learned from your dad, that's kind of, cause I believe, you know, it's probably a seed that was planted early on, but, uh, if you can talk to that, that'd be great. Oh, most certainly. Well, I, I've always, you know, held a very soft spot in my heart for teachers and for coaches, uh, who I believe are two of the most altruistic vocations in the world. I mean, uh, certainly you have uh, doctors and nurses and first responders. I mean, there's plenty of vocations that are are very servant based. Um, but yes, uh, having been raised by two teachers. I've seen that firsthand uh, because that really is, you know, teaching and coaching 101. You know, as a teacher, it's not about you. It's about your students. As a coach, it's not about you. It's about your players. And that's really where I've adopted this as a speaker. It's not about me. It's about the audience. And, and you know, I, I saw firsthand uh, how much fulfillment my parents derived by serving others and, and pouring, especially in this case, into young people. You know, I've always had a very strong affinity uh, for pouring into children. You know, I, I even knew it, and it sounds weird. It's kind of a stigma for a male to say this, but I've known ever since I was a little kid that I wanted to be a father, that I wanted to have children. You know, that was what led me to coaching in the first place was I loved pouring into young people because um, I know that it's, it's such, you know, they're at such impressionable times in their lives that not only would I be able to help them from a performance standpoint in the sport that they loved, but I always believed that I could be more than that and be a role model and, and, and be someone that could guide them to being better uh, off the court, not just on the court or same with the field. So, yeah, that was planted very early. Um, that, that servanthood uh, is how you make the world a better place, but it's also how you fill your own bucket and give yourself some fulfillment. And, yeah, seeing that firsthand from my parents uh, absolutely planted that seed very, very early. That's, that's a good point, too, because I think this whole idea of if you're giving, you get something in return. To me, it's all about the authenticity of that, right? If you're, if you're giving authentically, you are going to get something in return, probably more than you give, in all honesty, right? If you're just giving to get something in return, that's not a good, good place to be, right? So no, it's I, not. I love that point. And that's actually one that, that I've learned over time, uh, once again, with, with full transparency. Uh, I know that in my younger years, in my 20s and even early 30s, uh, I often gave with an expectation of something in return. Um, I didn't know any better at the time, you know, but, but now that I've learned to let go of that and just give freely and just try to fill as many buckets as I can, whether it's in person or it's through my book or it's on social, um, you know, the giving in and of itself 
is the actual reward. And, and it took some life experience and some maturity and, and certainly some mistakes for me to actually be able to realize that and feel that. Um, but boy, yeah, that is, it's so truthful that, that when you can pour into others, just that feeling alone gives such high fulfillment. And, you know, that's why, uh, you know, of the professions that I just named, you know, really with the exception of doctors who are usually compensated pretty well, you know, teachers and coaches and many first responders, you know, they're not doing it because of the compensation. They're doing it because they have a, a, you know, an authentic uh, an organic love for service and for helping other people. And, and I'm just so thankful, especially at a time like we've experienced over the last four to five months that we have so many good people doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's changed, right? It's become harder with whether it's e-learning or whatever it is. It's not just kids or families that are challenged. I mean, I you think about teachers. Oh yes. Seeing kids in a classroom every day, that energy, I, I can't imagine how hard that's been. I've got some friends that, better teachers uh, as well. And let's dive into that because I think that, like, look, man, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I know you're operating differently, doing a lot of virtual stuff. I can tell you for me three months ago, or it's, gosh, four months ago now, if you go back to February, I never did video calls. So we did a lot of client face-to-face stuff or it was audio conference calls. And so the first couple of weeks is a little weird to – get on video, but now it's, it's the norm. I mean, for me, for my team, we, we got on a call every other day, especially the, probably the first, I would say 10 weeks of this thing. And a lot of times not to talk about anything, but just to see faces and catch up. And that was powerful. It was just good to, to keep everybody, um, you know, just to, just to see eyeballs was uh, absolutely. So um, whether it's, uh, and you have three children, I know um, how, how can people, whether it's a parenting point of view, a work point of view, because I think it's a new norm, right? It's, it's very easy to not disconnect, by the way. You're working from home if you're not used to it. It's very easy to be working probably 15 hours a day and not turn it off. Yeah. And that that's, here's the thing, even when you're turned off, if your home office is just over there, your phone's just over there, it's very easy to go just check in. And spend 30 minutes and not be present with your kids. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts on how how can people manage in this environment. I think it goes back to a lot of what you said earlier on the preparation piece and really being intentional about that. But if you can oh, talk. most certainly. Well, here I'm gonna. I, I love that this is the direction that you want to go. This this will be a fun portion of our conversation. I'm gonna kind of look at it from a few different vantage points. Um, First, as a professional speaker, yes, very similar to you, uh, I have done more Zoom calls in the last three months than I had done in the first, you know, the last three years leading up to that. So uh, it certainly was a new experience. Um, One of the silver linings, and you know me, I'm a silver linings guy, that, Mm -hmm. that when things are bleak, um, I, I look even harder with intentionality to find the good parts, the, the silver linings. Uh, one of the benefits of COVID-19 for me personally is it reminds me that speaking is what I do. It's not who I am. Um, you know, I am a, a coach at heart. I am someone, I, I keep using that terminology, fill other people's buckets um, and allow people to improve their performance and increase their confidence in their achievement. And speaking is just the platform at which I use to express that. 
But, you know, it, after a couple of weeks of not being able to do in-person events and not being able to travel and get on stage, um, I could really feel that something was missing from my life. You know, I, I realized how much I loved doing that, but realized that that was just the way that I expressed what it was that I was doing. So for me, uh, being able to do these types of video calls um, is the next best thing and that I can still have an influence and an impact and, and fill people's buckets from a virtual medium. So that was a good reminder for me. Uh, it's also been very helpful to work on a new skill set, as you so insightfully said. You know, there is a big difference uh, between staring off into the abyss of a webcam where everyone on the other end is muted and you get no feedback and actually being in a room where you can feel energy and you can see head nods and you can hear claps and laughs. You know, so uh, I've been able to work uh, on a new skill set, a new form of communication, a new form of expression uh, that I do believe uh, will serve me moving forward. I don't believe virtual is is going anywhere, uh, even when we get back to some sense of normalcy and we get back to doing in-person events. I still think virtual is going to play a role, um, especially if nothing else, as a supplemental uh, or reinforcement tool to the in-person events. Uh, I think it's going to allow groups uh, to share uh, information even more widely in their organizations. So if only 200 people can come attend the event, but they have a thousand people in their company, now they can make sure that all thousand people are privy to that content. So um, I think the investment that you and I have made, uh, not only into our equipment, but into getting better at this portion of the craft will be a very helpful investment that we'll reap the benefits of uh, for years to come. So that's kind of the, the first angle that I've looked at that. Uh, the second angle is as a father of three children, this has really heightened my appreciation for teachers. You know, just seeing how difficult it's been, um, you know, as a parent trying to proctor my children's work, uh, it made me realize what an amazing job teachers have done on zero notice. I mean, they were told at a moment's notice to pivot their, you know, entire lesson plans and curriculums to a virtual space. And many of them most likely had no more virtual experience than you and I did. And they're now being told, hey, you know, you need to be able to teach 30 10-year-olds, you know, for a couple of hours, five days a week. That is no easy task. So, uh, uh, again, I had already had a very strong respect and appreciation for teachers, but now it is through the roof. And, you know, any teachers listening to this, anyone in education, uh, please know how much we as a society appreciate what you do to pour into our, our young people. Um, as a father, uh, I've always believed in kind of taking a hands-off approach with my children. Uh, I try to give them as much autonomy as possible. So after the first couple of sessions where they needed my technical assistance in logging on to their Zoom calls, um, once they knew how to do it, I just stepped back and said, hey, this is your responsibility. You know when you have your calls. You know how to turn in your work. You know what work needs to be completed before your next call. You know, you need to do it. And if you choose not to, then just understand there'll be consequences for that. Not consequences from me as your father, but consequences, you know, from your teacher or, or, or anyone else that you need to, to report to. So um, I actually think that that's been a good thing for my children to experience over the last, you know, several months is the autonomy and the self-reliance 
of what it takes. You know, I mean, I, I don't just, you know, throw them in a room and lock them in there. I make sure that I'm available to help if needed. Um, but I always want my kids to do the heavy lifting. You know, I want them um, to do as many things on their own as possible. And they know they can always come to me if they have questions, if they need help. Uh, but I don't want to be the type of parent that, that does everything for my children. Um, I want them to experience things on their own. I want them to fail and make mistakes on their own um, and let them sit with the disappointment or frustration or sadness that comes with this, uh, with that, because I think that will actually help them become better in the future. So from a, a learning and a content standpoint, uh, I don't know how much you know they absorbed over the last few months, but that's the least important. Uh, I think the best lesson to come from this uh, is an improvement in self-reliance, an improvement in self-accountability, um, and for them to be able to manage themselves. Because for the most part, you know, before that, uh, as a parent, all you got to do is get them to the bus stop, and then your hands off completely until 3 p.m. when they come home and everything else is taken care of. You know, now they've got to actually do a lot more of the heavy lifting, and I, I think that's been a great thing. All right, so uh, I've got to ask because it leads perfectly into this whole process conversation, right? Which we can, uh, you mentioned the Kobe story a couple times, and I think we can certainly jump, jump into that. I know you've, you've uh, worked with Steph Curry as well and have a cool story about him. So um, I personally used to be, and, and by the way, still goal oriented, but I didn't think as much about the process. And I look back and, you know, I played played a college sport and still at that time, even though I got to play at a fairly high level, I really wasn't process driven. I kind of by default just made it, but it wasn't intentional. So I've learned, I guess it's maturity. Um, and Bill Walsh, a late coach of the 49ers, wrote a great, a great book called The Score Takes Care of Itself, which is mind blowing. Just this whole um, idea of do be excellent in everything you do it doesn't mean perfect, but be you know strive for excellence. And so to me, that's that hits home what you talk about with your kids because if you give your best effort, sometimes you're not going to win. Sometimes you're not going to get an A or even a B, right? Like a C may be your best effort, but if you put the work in, fantastic, right? And that's I, I struggle with my son sometimes who's going into seventh grade and that. You know, I tell him that and trying to get him to buy into that. And look, I know his frontal lobe isn't developed and, you know, he's not, doesn't have that maturity and he's an athlete too, but just buying into that process. So I know you're a big process guy, so we can take this a million different ways, but that hit me with talking about your kids. Um, and I think it can be personal, athletic, business, school, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it hits everything. So um, why don't we jump in? You can either talk about process. Feel yeah. free to tell the Kobe story. We can do that up front or, or after. I, I love the Steph Curry story about the, the free throws and everything. So I think yeah. that, you know, you can touch on the athletic piece um, as well in your experience with those guys, uh, how the elite do it. But even the the average person, how they can, because most people don't think about it, right? Oh, Just for sure. The day-to-day, -day, the moment-to-moment -moment process. So. Well, one of the things that you just you hit on is is probably one of the hardest truths to face as an adult, which which you said so perfectly is uh, just because you give a great effort doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I tell young people and I remind myself of choosing not to give a good effort 
almost guarantees that you won't be successful. So everything we do in life, um, it, it's kind of a matter of odds, and we want to get the odds stacked in our favor. You know, we, we spent the first portion of this conversation talking about preparation and routines and habits and mindset, and the whole reason that I do all of that stuff is to put the odds in my favor and give me the best chance possible to serve that audience uh, when it's go time. Does not guarantee that it'll be the best talk I've ever given. Does not guarantee that it'll perfectly resonate with the audience. Does not guarantee a standing ovation, but it absolutely increases the chance that that will happen. And that's ultimately what we need to do. And then anytime that it falls short and you don't get the result that you had intended, whether it is a C in a, you know, on a grade or the, the talk didn't go as well as possible, uh, then for me, I've learned how to depersonalize that, take a step back and take full accountability for my role in falling short of that outcome, and then figure out strategically what I could have done differently to get a better response or to get a better outcome. Um, you know, in sports, uh, sometimes the other team is just better. I mean, you can do everything uh, as well as possible. Your preparation can be on point. Uh, you give a great effort. You play hard. You play smart. You play together. You execute. And you still end up a couple goals short of the other team because they were simply more talented. Um, that can happen. you know. But for most of what we do, especially in the business world and from a parenting standpoint, where we're not playing against a direct opponent, uh, then we have control over making some of those pivots and changes to be able to make improvements. So for me, the key though is that depersonalization is, is being able to say, okay, I fell a little bit short. Uh, yes, it's okay. I'm a little bit disappointed. I'm a little bit frustrated. I'm a little bit sad about it. I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to acknowledge that I'm going to own the fact that I and I alone was responsible for falling short but now what can I do to tweak that and move forward? And all of this falls under the umbrella of process. You know, we, we have these goals, you know, whether it's a, a numeric sales goal or a quota, uh, whether it's the goal of, of doing, you know, 70 speeches in a year or, uh, you know, whatever it may be. But then we have to figure out what is the process that will increase the chance of making that happen. And when you can learn to not only live in that process, but actually enjoy and embrace and appreciate and respect the process, that's, that's where the sweetness is. That's, that's where you actually get the fulfillment. Um, and it, it makes it easier to detach. You know, if my goal, and, and certainly, you know, that's what makes things very interesting about 2020. You know, of course, when I started this year, you know, my goal was to be able to give 70 talks again in 2020. And in January, I didn't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. And then COVID-19 struck and, you know, that will make it very difficult for me to reach that goal. Uh, but I'm not so attached to the goal that that's where I derive my identity. That's not where I derive my confidence, you know. So if I fall short and only accomplish half of that this year, I just have to ask myself what you said perfectly before. Was that the best I was capable of? You know, how well did I acclimate and pivot to the changing landscape created by the coronavirus, you know, and living in that process? And for me, uh, I always use the analogy of a brick wall. You know, you've got, you, you, you want to be able to build a beautiful brick wall, but in order to do that, you have to have respect for laying each brick with care and precision. And your goal every single day should be to wake up and lay a few bricks 
perfectly with care and precision. And if you do that consistently enough, the wall will take care of itself. And this is true if you're trying to get a certain grade in a class, if you're trying to win a championship in college soccer, if you're trying to give 70 talks in a year, uh, the, the, the juice is in laying those perfect bricks. And, and that's one of the lessons that I teach my children all of the time. You know, uh, my kids at present, you know, my son Jack in particular, you know, says that he has the goal of being a college basketball player. And I say, that's wonderful, buddy. He's only 10 years old right now. And I say, but I hope you understand that you can start laying bricks right now that will be part of that college basketball wall. In fact, it's in your best interest to start laying some bricks right now because if you wait till you're a junior in high school to start laying perfect bricks, you might find out you're too late. So uh, that's a, a beauty of having time on your side. So I encourage him. I don't force him. I don't make him. I encourage him to lay a few bricks every day that would take him a little bit closer to being a college basketball player. And if in a couple years his outcome changes and he doesn't want to be a college basketball player, he wants to be a, a Fortnite champion, well, that's fine. <laughs> now you need to start laying bricks that will allow you to accomplish that. So even when your goal changes or the outcome changes, the process doesn't have to change or the, the system at which you follow, the mindset at which you follow is not going to change. Yeah. Yeah, and that's an interesting point too because you see there are stories of dads or, or, or coaches that were very hard on kids. Uh, I think of Todd Marinovich, right? I'm sure you're aware of that story. I mean, this guy kid was a prodigy, and I don't think he ate a, a Big Mac his whole life and worked out every day and was unbelievable. And then, unfortunately, his identity, I think, was completely in, in football, and he turn to drugs and a lot of different things and, and, and somewhat of a sad story. Um, so that's, and I'll tell you personally, I, I find that, and my son's got a ton of potential. He's got a lot of raw ability and I, same thing. You have to put the work in and you have, but you also, you have to have the passion for it. You have to love it. So he's at a crossroads. He's going into seventh grade, been playing soccer since he was three. I used to coach him and he's, he's gotten to the point where he's not sure if he has the passion for it. And so we kind of, it's, it's almost on a daily basis, right? One day he wants to play and the next day he doesn't want to play anymore. And now it's to the point where you gotta be ready, man. You gotta, you're training three days a week with your team. You're playing a game or two, and then you got to do some work at home too. So I find it challenging to figure out how much do I push and how much do I just let it take its course? And I've, I've come to the realization that I can't, I can't push. I've got to let you, and I've, I'll have this candid conversation with them. If you're not passionate about it, let's find something else you can be passionate about. Yeah. But I don't care what it is. Well, um, I, I certainly share that sentiment as a father. And, and I think that as any parent, that's one of the, uh, the toughest balance beams to walk across is how much do I, I push and how much do I let them have the autonomy of deciding for themselves? And, and I don't believe for one second that I have the perfect recipe, but I've known for me, um, I'm, I'm, I always err on the side of being more conservative, you know, and, and I try not to push. Now, I want to encourage. Uh, I want to be supportive. 
Uh, I want to afford my children opportunities where they can lay some bricks. So if that means, you know, uh, they ask me to go out and rebound for them in the backyard while they get up shots or they ask me to take them somewhere or they ask if we can watch a game, you know, I, I want to be able to support. So I'm not leaving them on an island. Um, but, yeah, I do my best not to push. And, and here's a perfect example. Um, uh, the other day uh, I, I had my kids and, you know, I try to be physically active every day and I was going to get a workout in. So my son, Jack was playing on his iPad. He was sitting on the couch and I said, Hey buddy, I'm going to get a workout in. Would you like to join me? And he said, no, nah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of a game, daddy. I'm going to keep playing. And I said, sure, man, no problem. And I went and got my workout and I came back and I'm soaked in sweat and getting ready to make a little post-workout shake. And I just looked at him and said, you know, how was Fortnite? And he said, oh, it was good. And I said, no, let me just ask you a question, pal. Uh, you said you want to be a college basketball player, right? Yes, daddy. Did you just make a decision that's in alignment with being a college basketball player? When you chose to sit on the couch and play on your iPad, did that take you closer or further away from being a college basketball player. And it was kind of a, a very sentimental moment because he immediately started crying. Like he got really upset because wow. he realized he chose the wrong answer. And, and I consoled him with compassion and said, hey, man, it's okay. Uh, you're not going to bat a thousand. You're not going to always pick what's right. And there will be times where there's nothing wrong with you picking something else. You don't have to build your entire life as a 10-year-old to play college basketball. I want you to experience other things. I want you to do other things. But most importantly, I want you to have full ownership over your decisions. I want you and you alone that when it comes time to pass over that threshold and either become or not become a college basketball player, that you can say that, that you did everything in your power to make it happen. And it was really a great teaching moment. And anytime since that I've asked him, he's put the iPad down and volunteered to come work out. Uh, and the reason I share that was I didn't lecture him. I didn't pressure him. I didn't demean playing Fortnite. Because uh, to be quite honest, when I was his age, I may have wanted to play Fortnite just as much as he does. Uh, so I, I, that's my kind of a, that encapsulates, you know, my, uh, the way that I view being a father and giving opportunities, encouraging and supporting, teaching lessons, but never ever making them do anything. And yeah. hopefully that lesson will stick for a little while uh, and it'll become even more powerful in the future. You know, when he chooses to do something that's not in alignment with being a college basketball player, I can just remind him of that. And yep. hopefully that will, will help keep him on course. And, and, and I want to make sure that that I stress too, that as a parent, it makes absolutely no difference to me whether or not he plays college basketball. Sure. Uh, in fact, the only reason that it would make a difference is if it's important to him, then it's important to me by default because I love him very much. Um, but my love for my children has nothing to do with their achievement or their accomplishments. Uh, that's simply up to them. So uh, like I said, if he chooses to switch his target to somewhere else, and, and doesn't want to be a college basketball player, he'll have to know that that recipe doesn't change, that the system of what it's going to take to accomplish that new goal will be the exact same. Yeah, I mean, you said two words that I think hit home, self-awareness, or maybe you didn't say it, but I thought of it. And I know, know it's I, the book's behind you and I got it right here. I think it might even be your first chapter or one of the early ones. And then you said the word ownership. That's those are both hard. A lot of people don't, even our age, don't have that. 
It's, it's, you got to, I mean, there's a lot of humility it takes. I know, I mean, look, I know there's plenty, I have plenty of weaknesses and I want trusted advisors around me that tell me, Hey, look, this is, you know, you have strength certainly, but here are some things you need to get better at. I mean, that's, and that's where you get, you know, from a team, get someone else, what you're weak at, someone else can pick up. But, but I think to go back to the ownership and self-awareness piece, um, it's crucial. And I wanted to, cause I have it written down. I know your quote is on the wall at Penn state. I know you've, you've done some work with coach Franklin and interviewed him as well, but I'll, I'll read it. Are the habits you have today on par with the dreams you have for tomorrow? Right. Yeah. That's powerful, man. I, you know, I don't know how you came up with that or, or when it was, but that's, that's no joke. And that's so, and just what you said about Jack. I mean, well, I appreciate that. And that's really, I'm glad that you brought that up because that kind of uh, is the epitome of the lesson that I was trying to teach him. You know, are the, the habits you have today, are those in alignment with being a college basketball player? Um, and at that moment, choosing Fortnite over working out was not in alignment. And, and when you take that quote one step further, you're basically saying, well, if they're not in alignment, if the habits you have today are not in alignment with the dreams you have for tomorrow, then one of them needs to change. You either need to improve your habits or you need to lower your dreams. And yeah. I say that almost tongue in cheek because if you ever ask someone to lower their dreams, they look at you like you've got two heads. They're like, what are you talking about? No, I'm not going to shoot for less. Okay, well, that's great. Still keep that dream of being a college basketball player, but that means you have to change your habits. Uh, that's the only part of the equation that's left over. And, you know, what I, I always try to remind my children of, too, that in order to take some of the pressure off of these goals is the fact that you have the most valuable resource in existence, which is time. You are 10 years old. You have eight years to work on your craft of becoming a college basketball player if that is your goal. That is a significant amount of time. So using that same analogy, if I say, look, buddy, it's going to take 10,000 bricks to build a college basketball wall, it's in your best interest to lay a couple dozen bricks every single day starting right now. Uh, don't wait till you're a junior in high school and you've got to lay 10,000 bricks then. Start laying them now. And this has nothing to do with whether or not you're the best player on your team or are you ranked as a 10-year-old. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the more you can prepare earlier, the better you'll become over time and the easier and better and more equipped you'll be to lay those bricks. So um, those are the, the types of lessons that, that as a father, I just want to make sure they understand those. Uh, but then equally important, if not more important, uh, I make sure that I model the exact same behavior with my children. And then I, I connect the dots with them and say, hey, you know, college basketball is definitely in my rear view mirror. But here are some of the things that I'd like to accomplish over the next few years. And here's the bricks that I'm going to lay every single day. Um, you know, using that mindset of, of looking in the future, as I talk about simplicity, you know, I've got a loose vision of the man that I want to be 20 years from now. You know, I'm 44 years old. So I, I can picture with great clarity who I want the 64-year-old Alan to be. Now, without getting into too much detail, uh, I want the 64-year-old Alan to be mentally, physically, and emotionally fit. I want the 64-year-old Alan to have a deep connection with his children, his family, his friends, his colleagues, and his clients. 
I want the 64-year-old Alan to be doing at that time what he considers meaningful work in service of others. So that's kind of the loose vision that I have of who I want to be 20 years from now. And now what I do is I make sure every decision that I make in my life is in alignment with becoming that person. I make sure that everything I do from what I eat for lunch to who I follow on Instagram is going to take me closer to being the 64-year-old Alan. Now, I'm certainly well aware of the fact that time is not promised. There is no guarantee that I'll even see the age of 64. But if I do, and I live a life on a daily basis that is consistent with that, then that is who I'll become. I will be designing my future with intention. And with that said, I'm not batting a thousand. I make decisions and and make mistakes and, and have lapses in judgment and make choices that aren't always in alignment with that. But I own them. I acknowledge them. I don't blame anyone else. I don't make excuses and I don't complain about it. Uh, I own the fact that I may have made a decision today that was not in alignment with being physically fit. I made a decision today that was not in alignment with having a deeper connection with my children. And then as we mentioned earlier, then I find a way to, to pivot and to improve that. But I know that if the vast majority of decisions that I make every day uh, are taking me closer to being that man, then that's who I will become. And that, that gives me tremendous optimism and poise, even when times are very bleak like they are right now, knowing that I'm designing my own future. And, and on that, you know, something I kind of say to myself quietly every night before I go to bed, I say, I just traded 24 hours of my life for the progress I made today. Am I good with that trade? And as long as I can put my head on my pillow saying, yeah, that was a good trade for today, and I try to string as many of those together as possible, then I feel pretty good about the direction at which I'm going. I love that. I'm going to steal that if you don't mind. Please do. I'm sure I stole it from someone else. So, okay. Gosh, a million different things. We could, I think we could talk for six hours, by the way, but I won't, I won't keep you at that long. We'll wrap up. I love it, man. This is important because I think as a recovering perfectionist, a perfectionist tendency, I guess I would argue, I imagine you're the same. I would argue every human being has perfectionist tendencies. What you just said is you have this uh, vision. You talked about intent, living intentionally, having this purpose, which is amazing. But I wrote down imperfect progress. In, let me say that again, imperfect progress. And that's so important, right? Many people, including me at times, don't move forward because something you want it to be 100% perfect, right? You, you, instead of getting, I've heard some people talk about, you know, get 80% there, that's good enough and go. Um, and I think that's, that's very, very important. So I'm curious to get to dive into that a little bit and just, you know, you've worked with some of the best of the best athletes, guys we put on a pedestal that you think they just show up every day when you're just watching on TV, you see LeBron and you're like, the guy's just was born as a great basketball player or Kobe or whoever that are current. Like that's not the case. These guys put a lot of time and effort. Yes. They're gifted. Of course. I'm curious to, to get your perspective on mindset when it comes to that perfection or, or embracing imperfection, both with what you're doing, speaking, parenting, and then even the, these elite athletes at that level or, or, 
I know you work with a lot of CEOs. How do people deal with that of just continuing uh, to move forward? I, I, you know, what comes to mind is the, the improv theme of yes and, right? That's a big, that's learning, learning a little bit of improv here recently. Just, you know, you just keep going with the flow type thing. So um, hopefully that made sense. I think I, I meandered a little bit on that. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, and anytime you can throw a, a yes and reference in there, an improv reference, you nailed it. I love that. You know, one of the, as I told you, as I've gotten older, I've, I've tried to embrace more simplistic concepts. I'm a big believer that complexity is actually a demotivator, that we often try to make things way more complicated than they need to be. Uh, whether it's a nutrition and fitness uh, program or a parenting style or the way we run our businesses, the basics work. They always have and they always will. So for me, uh, I've learned that uh, it doesn't help to get stifled by perfection. We need to spend much more time focused on progress. In fact, where you are right now is not near as important as the direction at which you're going. Uh, as long as your ramp is going up, your arrow is pointed towards the North Star that you've created, that is way more important than where you are at present. Because if each day you can make incremental progress, you can lay a few more bricks to get closer to where it is that you're trying to go, that's what's most important. And the key is being able to derive fulfillment from progress and not from perfection. You know, depending on what we're talking about, uh, I could probably make a compelling argument that perfection is unattainable uh, in any way, shape, or form. I you agree. know, one of the things that Coach Jones at DeMatha would always say to the team is, in the history of basketball, since Naismith hung up the first peach basket, a perfect game has never been played. There has never been a game where an entire team did not have a single turnover, did not miss a single shot, did not drop a single pass. It's never happened. So we don't need to be stifled by that. What we need to do is prepare and perform to the best of our ability. Uh, any areas that we fall short, we learn from that so that we can continue to progress. So I think uh, we can drive ourselves insane if we're entirely fixated on doing something that is actually unattainable. So let's not even worry about perfection. Let's worry about, uh, as you said, and I love the word imperfect is great because we all are imperfect in many different ways. But if we can learn from those imperfections, then we can still make progress. So these imperfections can and will, if you're open to it, lead to progress. And, and that's the mindset that I, I try and have. Um, the other thing I would say is if perfection was attainable and once you achieve it, then what? Where do you go from there? You know, uh, part of the fun of life is the journey. It's getting there. You know, I've, I've, had a, I've had friends that have climbed Mount Everest. I mean, I know this sounds almost cliche, uh, but they'll tell you that it was the climb that was so rewarding. It was the climb that was fun. Once you get to the peak, you have a moment of pride, you take a deep breath, and you're like, this is amazing, and that lasts for a couple of minutes, and then it's like, okay, what's next? So even if you did achieve perfection with anything, um, uh, where do you go from there? So part of what makes, I think, life fun is this constant pursuit of self-development and self-improvement. And by definition, if you're perfect, then you have nothing to improve. You have nothing to develop. And therefore, you have nothing to work on and actually enjoy and have fun. 
So good. Um, so you said the, the word basics there, and I, I think we've mentioned the Kobe story, and I know you've, you've told it a million times, but I think it's so powerful. So if you don't mind, if we can end with that and then maybe with uh, where people can learn more about you, that'd be, that'd be great. Absolutely. Well, back in 2007, Nike flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And uh, if any of your listeners don't follow basketball, just know that in 2007, Kobe was the best player in the game. Uh, As I had mentioned, basketball was my first love. So uh, I've been involved and around the sport for my entire life. So I had always heard this urban legend of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. Well, now that I was on his camp staff, I figured this was my chance. This was my shot. So my earliest opportunity, I walked up to Kobe and asked if I could watch one of his private workouts. He was incredibly gracious and smiled and said, sure, man, no problem. I'm going tomorrow at four. And I got a little bit confused because I had just got done looking through the camp schedule. And the camp schedule clearly said that the first workout with the players was the following day at 3.30, Well, Kobe recognized that confused look on my face, and he quickly clarified that with a, yeah, that's 4 a.m. Well, I wasn't smart enough or quick enough to come up with a reason on why I couldn't be somewhere at 4 in the morning, so I'd committed myself to being there, and I figured if I was going to be there anyway, I may as well try and impress Kobe. I may as well show him how serious of a trainer I was, so I came up with the plan to beat him to the gym. So I set my alarm for 3 a.m., The alarm goes off, I jump up, I get myself dressed, I hop in a cab, and I head to the gym. When I arrive, it's 3.30 in the morning, so it's pitch black outside. And yet the moment I step out of the cab, I could see the gym light was already on. From the parking lot, I could faintly hear a ball bouncing and sneakers squeaking. I walked in the side door, Kobe was already in a full sweat. See, he was going through an intense warm-up before his official workout started with his trainer at four. Well, out of professional courtesy, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say anything to his trainer. I just sat down to watch. And for the first 45 minutes, I was shocked. For the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player in the world do the most basic footwork and offensive moves. He was doing stuff that I had routinely taught to middle school age players. Now, let's not get it twisted. This was Kobe Bryant. So he was doing everything at an unparalleled level of intensity. And he was doing everything with surgical precision. But the stuff he was doing was incredibly basic. Well, his whole workout lasted a few hours. And when it was over, once again, I didn't say anything to him. I didn't say anything to his trainer. I just quietly left. But my curiosity kept nagging away. And it eventually got the best of me. So I went up to him later that day at camp and said, Kobe, I don't understand. You're the best player in the world why are you doing such basic drills? And he flashed that million dollar smile, but said with all seriousness, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. I never get bored with the basics. Kobe Bryant, the best player in the world and someone that has truly mastered his craft, said his secret is that he never gets bored with the basics. And as obvious as that may sound to everyone watching and listening right now, that was a life-changing lesson for me. At that moment, it's when I realized that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Those are not synonyms, and yet people often use those words interchangeably. Just because it's basic doesn't mean that it's easy. If it was easy, everyone else would be doing it. And we live in a world today that tells us it's okay to skip steps, 
tells us we should always be looking for a shortcut or a hack, tells us that we can just circumvent the process. But anytime we do that, we're making a grave mistake because the basics work. They always have and they always will. And the very first step to improving performance in any area of your life, it doesn't matter if it's personal or professional, it doesn't matter if it's individual or organizational, the very first step is to admit that the basics work, but it's also having the humility to acknowledge that implementing the basics every single day is never, ever going to be easy. Love it. I, I've heard it now a few times. I've obviously heard you live and I've watched it and it's, uh, I get chills every time I oh, hear that thanks, story. So ho- hopefully that, uh, I know it, not hopefully, I know it resonates with anybody that listens to it. Um, speaking of basics, here's Alan's book, Raise Your Game. You can uh, find him on social media. Um, Alan, what's, I believe you're, writing a new book aren't you as well I am at present i sure am so you know the whole the whole goal of raise your game was to show folks how to elevate their performance to the highest level possible uh, the follow-up book that i'm working on right now is once you've attained high performance how can you sustain it for long periods of time and manage daily stress avoid stagnation and and alleviate getting burnt out you know, how can you be a high performer uh, for not just months and years, but for decades without getting burnt out? So that's really the focus of the next book. And uh, I'm having just as much fun writing this follow-up as I did writing Raise Your Game. That's cool. I'm sure uh, I know you're a big user of Headspace, the meditation app. I think you're over a thousand days in a row, if I'm I not sure mistaken. am. Yeah, this morning was 1,070. Awesome. And uh, I know you're a big intermittent faster, too. Alan uses the Zero app. You turned me on onto that, although I haven't been as good at that lately. But uh, that's that's good stuff. Um, the tools, right? You talk about the basics. That's so. I'm excited for that that book to come out, man. I can't wait for that. It'll be fun. And you know, we've talked all of this about a process, and and there's nothing more process driven than writing a book. Uh, writing a book is not something that you sit down and you do the night before, uh, the way many of us crammed in high school and college. Uh, writing a book is a very uh, extended process mm-hmm. of generating a variety of ideas and, and seeing what stuff sticks and then finding ways to organize it and then going into your vault of stories and lessons and then doing some research and then starting to to put the book into some type of framework and then fill in all the little holes. Um, but, but I really, really enjoy that. And, and I will say the last thing I, I know you've got to run. Um, one of my favorite parts about the work that I do, both speaking and writing, is it holds me to a higher standard myself. My biggest fear in the world, outside of something for my own health and safety, is that Uh, someone is going to see me do something or say something that's not in alignment with what it is that I teach. Um, And and I I work really hard to live in that alignment. Um, But just like any human being, as we talked about imperfection, I make mistakes. I have lapses in judgment. And my biggest fear would be that, that someone see me doing something that is different than what it is that I'm teaching others. You know, when, when I come and came and spoke to your company and, and I'm talking for an hour about all of these values and habits and mindsets, if later that night in the lobby, someone would have seen me behaving differently than I just talked about, that would undermine all credibility. So the reason I bring that up is doing this type of work helps hold me to the highest standard possible uh, because I feel I owe it to myself and I owe all of those that I work with 
to live my best life and to be my best self, uh, whether it's during the seen or the unseen hours. So just writing this book and giving these types of talks helps hold me to a higher level of accountability. And, and for that, I'm very, very thankful. Awesome, man. I can't thank you enough. It's uh, always good to talk to you. You are uh, an inspiration and, and just uh, one of the people I look up to. So I can't thank you enough for your, uh, your time and uh, all you do for me and uh, our audience here today. Well, I you, appreciate your friendship, your leadership, and your mentorship as well, man. Right back at you. Thank you. Awesome, brother. Thanks. Thanks.